Heritage Park Baptist Church, we make apprentices to Jesus Christ. For more information about our church, please visit heritagepark.org. Again, welcome. Um, glad that we are together. Trent, our normal preaching pastor, is out this week. Uh, he had some time to go spend with his family and some extended family, and I think it's been a great time uh, for them. So he'll uh, be back with us, but that leaves uh, me with the chance and the honor to get to open the Word of God uh, together with you. So this week we'll be in the book of James, if you have a Bible and want to turn there. If you don't have a Bible but would like one, we have some on the back of the tech booth back there that we would love to give you as a gift to take home with you to use. Um, we, again, would be happy to, to provide that to you if you would like one. Uh, and then if you are a, a user of the Bible app, we should have a live event uh, that if that helps you follow along with the, the sermon, uh, please make use of that. We are continuing in kind of our uh, 90-day push to read the New Testament in 90 days. Uh, and we're kind of turning the corner, coming to the home stretch. We have four weeks left, uh, a month left in this to read through the entire New Testament as a church body together with each other over 90 days. And if you haven't uh, been participating in that, we would just invite you to jump in. Don't feel like you've got to go catch up and try and do the first uh, 60 days in a week. Uh, just jump in where we are. Uh, start kind of the last 30 days with us, the last four weeks, um, and, and be blessed through that. If you uh, have been participating in the challenge, but you know, things happen and you're not quite as caught up as you used to be and you're feeling a little down because you meant to do it and you're, you know, six weeks behind, uh, no worries. Jump in. Like, jump in. Come up. Uh, don't worry about catching up. Jump in where we are and uh, just finish out. Completion is great. Uh, it's worthwhile. Uh, but the goal is not that everyone completes it necessarily. The goal is that we engage with God's Word. And so if you're in a place that right now you just need to catch up, then do that. Just jump in uh, where we are and, and don't worry about the things that have been missed in the past. There are situations in life and, and times that we, we enter into where we find ourselves in an either-or situation. Uh, it's black and white. There's no thing that can't both be true at the same time. You're either married or unmarried. Like, there's no realm of life where you're sort of married and sort of unmarried. You know, you've got a status one way or the other. You're either a parent or you're not a parent. You have kids or you don't have kids. There's not a, you know, well, I've got like half a kid uh, or something like that. It's just one way or the other. And in that, uh, James here is, I think, presenting us with a dichotomy like that. He's saying, hey, there are two options that we're presented with as believers, uh, and we need to choose one and not the other because we can't do both. James was a, a leader in the early church. He was a, uh, kind of the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the kind of first church that started. Uh, and this book, this letter that he writes, is actually what many believe to be the first letter of the New Testament. Uh, they didn't date these things, so they have to try and figure it out from other sources. But this is really kind of the summary of his life and his teaching and what he's trying to get to Christians to understand about what it looks like to live an authentic Christian life. And he says, like I said, there's, there's two ways in which we can live. And he presents this to us in James chapter 3 uh, in terms of wisdom. What wisdom are we living out of? So if you've got it open, we'll start in verse 13 uh, and go to verse 18. Then we read, who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom that this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but this is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. 
But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Right from the start of this passage, James is inviting us to examine our lives. He's saying, take a look at how you're going about uh, living the life that you live. And is there wisdom involved in that? Is there uh, wise wisdom and understanding in how you navigate life? Well, see, for James and, and other biblical authors, wisdom wasn't like how we sometimes think about it, where it's the accumulation of knowledge. Um, in the Bible, when they talk about wisdom, they're talking about really kind of a skill at navigating life, a skill at navigating the circumstances that we encounter. Uh, so for James, when he says, do you have wisdom, he doesn't care if you have a PhD or never completed a GED. To him, it's, no, how do you live your life? What's the effects of when you encounter various complexities and circumstances, how you navigate those and move on your way through it? And James says, if you have wisdom, if you, if you think that you have wisdom and understanding, then you should look at your life and you should find Good conduct. There's good conduct and the meekness of wisdom. Meekness is kind of an old-timey word we don't use a whole lot. Uh, I love the ESV, which is what uh, we read from here most of the time. Um, I've used it for about 20 years. For whatever reason, this is an odd translation of that because we don't use that word very often. A lot of other translations render it gentleness or the humility that comes from wisdom. So I think that's easier for us to kind of get an idea of what he's saying here. He's saying if you have wisdom, if we have wisdom, if we're living a wisely in this life, that should show itself in good conduct and in humility that comes from wisdom. This sounds a lot and kind of reminded me of uh, something James said earlier in his letter that if you read it this week, you, you came across and you probably remember. In chapter 2, there's this famous passage uh, about faith and works, and James kind of concludes that, hey, if you have faith, then you also must have works. He says kind of a famous statement, faith without works is dead. And this has created over the years a, uh, not a small amount of kind of controversy and debate within the church about how do we understand how our faith and our works and our salvation all intermingle. And what we understand through reading all of Scripture and the whole witness of Scripture is that we are saved by faith alone through grace alone in Christ alone. But what James is pointing out here, he says, if you have faith, that faith, in chapter 2, that faith will produce works. He said it's, faith is not just an uh, assent to intellectual ideas. It's a breathing thing that's going to transform your life because you view reality as something completely different in, you know, if you know who Christ is and have faith in him. So our works don't contribute to salvation, but living faith, it matters and plays itself out in how we engage with the world. In the same way, if you are an avid college basketball fan, you have had your TV on a lot the past couple of days. You know, some people are like, oh yeah, I like sports. If you're not watching March Madness, you don't really like sports that much. You know, it is the greatest sporting event that goes on. And so for many of us, that we had free time, and even sometimes when we were supposed to be doing something else, we had it on like a separate screen over in the corner. Because you like sports, this is a great time of year for that. And in the same way, what James is saying, if we have true faith, that's going to play out in our works. And in the same way, James is kind of just shifting that content a little bit, shifting the idea from faith and works to saying that wisdom shows up as well in our good conduct. James elaborates on, okay, what does good conduct mean? Because that's a pretty vague proposition uh, with a contrast that he gets into in verses 14 and 15. 
He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but there is earthly, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. See, James says there are two types of wisdom that people can live out of. There's this wisdom that he terms as wisdom that's coming down from above. And he gets into that this generates the good conduct. He says we've got to contrast this with wisdom from this earth, this worldly wisdom that he mentions. See, James isn't naive. He's not saying that, hey, success is demonstrating that that person is using godly wisdom. It's like people, there's a way to engage with this world, the wisdom of this world that we can navigate, that can bring success, it can bring achievement, it can achieve our ends and get us to where we want to go. But it is not wisdom that comes from God. It is a very different source of wisdom. And that's what he says here. He says that it's, uh, wisdom doesn't come down from above, but rather it's worldly, it's earthly. And he says it's unspiritual, contrasting it, which again, the wisdom that comes from God and from above. And ultimately, he says that it's demonic. He says that this source of this type of wisdom is from the devil. And this seems harsh because we don't really think about life in these terms very often, but this is the consistent witness of the uh, whole of Scripture about what the condition of our hearts outside of God is. He says it's not just that we're a little bit imperfect or we have a few things we need to work on, but uh, by and by we're not too terrible of people, we're, we're decent. No, it's the human uh, condition, according to the Bible, is that we are lost and dead in sin. Uh, Martin Luther, not Martin Luther, uh, Augustine, who lived way before Martin Luther, uh, was one of the probably the most influential uh, non-biblical author that has kind of shaped the church and the, the life of the church, the thought of the church. Um, he wrote a long time ago that he said basically what sin is, the human condition in sin, is to be bent in on itself. And what he meant by that is basically that we kind of grab and claw and pull things into ourselves and say, how can I use people and situations to my advantage? It's a natural disposition to selfishness. And for me, that's how I've kind of, the easiest way I can make sense of what the Bible describes as sin isn't necessarily the actions and the things that we do, but it's the natural selfishness that resides in our, my heart and in your heart. That I'm concerned for me primarily, and I want things to serve me, which is, again, against uh, and different from what we find from God. And the scripture describes that this is the way that the world operates. This is the natural disposition of this world. In this world, uh, Satan is the ruler of this world, and so it operates under this, his system. And so there are two types of wisdom that we can operate in this world, and one of them is this, and it can get results, but it's growing from bad soil. And if you grow something from bad soil, you get bad fruit. And that's what he says. He says, what's the defining trait? What's the source of this type of wisdom? He says it operates out of bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. This reminds me, sounds a lot like what Paul says in Philippians 2, where he says that we should do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others better than yourselves. And they're not copying each other. Like, Paul's not plagiarizing James here. What they're both doing is they're looking at the life of Jesus and trying to put into words what he modeled for us, that our source or our model of wisdom from above and what that looks like against selfish ambition and bitter jealousy is Jesus and his character and nature and how he operated in the world. That They look at his life and say, this Jesus stepped down out of heaven into earth that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give, him, uh, give his life as a ransom for many, that he embraced hunger, he embraced lack, he embraced tiredness, he embraced pain, he embraced ridicule, he embraced all that comes with this world solely for our benefit. 
and that a few hours before he would be betrayed, he actually took the time to take on the job of a servant and to wipe the muck and the grime off of the disciples' feet, including the disciple that he knew would soon betray him. And then he went to the cross, a gruesome death on our behalf, that for our sake, God made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. The wisdom of this world that James is warning us against looks at people and things and situations and say, how do these serve my ends? How does this world serve me? But the wisdom from above that Jesus models looks around and says, how can I best serve this world? That changes everything about the fruit that our life produces. Let's pick up again in, in verse 16. It says, For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. Uh, other translations say evil deeds. Uh, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Worldly wisdom gives us this world as we find it today. Like, look at the headlines. Look at what's going on around. What do we see? We see disorder. We see confusion and chaos and evil deeds. This is how the world operates. But James says, no, if we, we can be different because of what God has done in us and because of the model that Jesus has given to us and the work of the Spirit, that if we operate with wisdom from above, we can create a community that's entirely different than the way that the world naturally finds itself. And this is what we're called to as believers. Uh, verse 17 is kind of a, uh, elaborating on uh, verse 13, that good conduct and humility. What does that look like? And he gives us eight characteristics. He says, first of all, it's pure. Uh, that word's the same word that elsewhere is uh, rendered as holy. Like, it's, it's godly uh, life. And that plays itself out in our actions. What is the opposite of acting from selfish ambition? It's being peaceable and being gentle and being open to reason. If I'm, self, if I'm operating out of ambition and selfishness, then I'm looking around saying, hey, how does this benefit me, and how can I use this to my advantage? And I'm not interested in the truth. I'm not interested in actually resolving something. I'm trying to leverage that situation. What's the opposite of bitter jealousy? It's a life full of mercy and good fruits. It's an impartial person. It's someone who is sincere. And sincere there doesn't mean... Um, like, well-meaning. A lot of times that's how we, we think of sincere. Sincere means genuine. It means kind of wholeheartedness. Uh, it's a complete lack of any duplicity or any angle that they're trying, you're trying to work. It's that they, what they mean is what they say. There's not uh, hypocrisy in them. And James sums up uh, the life that reflects these traits, uh, life characterized by these traits, and says that uh, this idea that a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And peace is this really big idea that James comes back to a time and time again through his letter. Uh, if you back up just a few verses before this passage, uh, what James had just been talking about was the power of words and how people use their tongues. And he's writing to Christians and saying, brothers and sisters, out of the same mouth, you will curse a person and then bless God. And he says, these two things should not coexist out of the same tongue, out of the same mouth. And he gives the example that it's like a fig tree producing olives. There's something unnatural about these two things coinciding. It shouldn't be that way. And then he goes on in chapter 4, starting the verse after where we ended, and says, what causes quarrels among you? What causes fights? And then says, you guys are basically acting like the world acts. You have lives characterized by selfish ambition and bitter jealousy. He says, we should expect this to be the way of the world. This is the way of the world. But when 
it doesn't make sense when Christians that know the peace and love of God come together. We should expect something differently. This is uh, a lot like what Paul says in another passage from this week's uh, reading in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Uh, there in verse 7, Paul says, Therefore, if anyone in Christ is a new creation, or if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and trusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors of Christ, making God, God making his appeal through us, and we implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. The point Paul is making here is he says that while we were enemies of God, God is the one who acted to reconcile. God is the one who acted to bring us into relationship with him. God is the one that chose to forgive us of our sins, not from anything that we had done, but just because that is God's nature, and he wanted to bring us back, and so he sent Christ. And that us, as recipients of that message of reconciliation, as recipients of the one-sided forgiveness and grace and mercy of God poured out on us, that we should go and do likewise and take this, be a minister of reconciliation, is how Paul says it. That we act like Jesus acted and go to those that are outside, those that don't know God. And in Paul, when I think he's talking about the message of reconciliation, um, his primary sense is the proclaiming of the gospel, that we go and we share our faith, we share the good news of what Christ has done for us and is available to those that would turn and believe in him. But I think James takes a little different take on it, where James is concerned, not necessarily, yes, he would want us to share our faith, he'd want us to proclaim that, But he also says, if we're proclaiming that we can be reconciled to God and then we can't be reconciled to one another, something is fundamentally off. That we can't say, you know, God has shown me endless amounts of mercy and grace and peace and poured this out on my life for no reason other than he chose to to love me and give me this offer. And then if I'm fighting with the people that I come into contact with and just uh, am a contentious person, there's something that's incongruous about that. This wisdom from above that says that this peacemaking attitude should pervade its way through all of our life and every uh, attitude that we have in all the areas that we, we go. We should be peacemakers with those that we come into contact with. I think it's important to say that there's a couple things that peace, uh, James doesn't think about when he's thinking about peace that sometimes we uh, accept as a poor substitute for peace. Uh, the first thing is ignoring tension and conflict so that we don't have like an outright fight. Uh, I think we've all been in that situation where we know like something's off, something's not quite right, but we don't want to address it because we know if we do, it's just going to lead to a whole other thing. And so we'd rather live with kind of this, uh, basically a limp in our relationship. It's not quite operating like it should. I mean, that's not what James is getting at here. For James, peace is coming from the Old Testament idea of shalom, this word that had this rich meaning that was not just an absence of conflict, but it was actually wholeness. It was things operating like it should. And that's what the, James is getting at. He's saying through love for others that comes from the wisdom that God gives us, the wisdom from above, that even when we're sinned against, even when we're wronged, even when we disagree with someone and differ, that we can work to maintain a whole and a healthy relationship and continue to love that person fully and not, be, uh, not have that relationship impacted by that difference. And I think today where we find ourselves, this is one of the loudest ways that our lives can proclaim the gospel. 
because we live in a world where peacemaking is contrary to what we see each and every day, just in normal relationships. I think uh, humans have always kind of tended to us versus them mentalities, uh, but today it seems that that's growing in a, a really kind of uh, troubling way that there's more contention, more divisiveness uh, than, than we've seen before. Uh, one thing that's been pointed to is like people are looking at this in our culture saying, why does it just seem more heated? Why is there people fighting more often now? Um, and one thing that's been pointed to is the, the role of technology and social media that uh, has just influenced so much of our life, uh, been become ever-present, it feels like, and how those things work. And we know this, but they uh, filter stuff so we start hearing more and more of what we want to hear and things we agree with, and uh, we get shown that. And it allows us to insulate ourselves and kind of break away so we don't necessarily encounter differing viewpoints. We don't encounter people from different backgrounds or, or hear uh, different socioeconomic groups or political ideologies. We just hear the people that kind of look and think and sound like us. Um, social commentators have actually given this a name. They say it's, it's the big sort. Uh, you may have come into contact with that or, or not. You can find articles on it. But basically the idea is that Americans are self-sorting uh, into just communities where it's just everybody looks and thinks and acts the same. And it's even going so far as that some people are picking up and moving to different neighborhoods or different towns so they can get around people that are more like-minded because they don't want to be around those that are differ. And it's been happening for a couple of decades, but they say it's increasing uh, quite a bit over the past 10 years or so. But one of the problems, <clears throat> one of the problems is of this is that if I hear only people that agree with me and only viewpoints that I already uh, think are correct, then we become just naturally more and more convinced of our own rightness. That I'm right, I, there's, I'm definitely, definitely right in this. And the flip side of that is not only do we become more and more convinced of the other side's wrongness, but there's a real danger that we start to believe that no rational person could think that way. Not just that they're wrong, but the other side is a fool or incompetent. Um, and this is not, I think this pervades a lot of areas of our life, but the easiest way to see it um, is on some of the, politi- uh, the political rhetoric that goes on. Like if you get on your social media feed and just scroll and observe the language that's used to describe the other side, some of it's just full of vitriol. With the tongue, we bless our Lord and Father, and we curse, with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Just because people get lumped together under an umbrella of right or left or conservative or liberal doesn't change the fact that we should still speak of them in accordance with Scripture. But as Christians, we are empowered to model a different way. But this requires us to act and be willing to go against every cultural current that we come into contact with, with every influence that we see when we open Facebook or Twitter. So what, what does this look like? I think we've all been, I'll just speak for myself, I have been guilty at times of saying or at least thinking, you know, I don't know how any person could believe that, or I don't know how any Christian could vote for X candidate. I think one of the things that James would challenge us to do would say, well, have you ever asked them? Have you ever sat down over coffee or dinner and you pick up the tab and said, hey, help me understand here. Like, how are you thinking through this? And then as you have that conversation, do you actually listen and consider the reasons, or do you just sit there and think about all the reasons that they're wrong and the arguments that prove your point? Difference is not bad. The Christians can differ on things and still be united in our love 
for Christ. And again, that, that goes far beyond politics, but that's such a, a way that uh, seems ever pervasive in our, our day-to-day. Um, but that kind of goes on to the other thing that peace is not. Peace is, being peaceable is not agreeing on everything, not all having the same way to look at the world. Uh, Trent, a couple of weeks ago, if you were here, talked about circles of cooperation, I think is what he termed it. Um, and he was talking more about specifically looking at Christian faith and Christian beliefs. And he said, you know, in the, in the center, there is this circle of a relatively uh, handful of uh, doctrines that you have to hold to be a believer. The bodily resurrection, a death and resurrection of Christ. That God is Father, Son, and Spirit. These are basic things that just make up the Christian faith. And then there's a broader circle uh, that are things that are still important uh, and things that we probably need to agree on uh, to just cooperate in the same church together. How do we handle baptism? How do we think about the Lord's Supper? Uh, But there are people in the faith, our our Presbyterian brothers and sisters, Episcopalians, look at it differently, and we say, we're not saying you're not a Christian. We're just saying we disagree on these things, and we probably need to have different churches so we can kind of operate under our convictions. And then there's a whole big, uh, huge circle of faith and practice that we can disagree on it, and we can um, hold different viewpoints on. And we can trust that one day we'll get to heaven, and Jesus will tell me why I'm right and all the other people are wrong. You know? But the, I think the example he used here was eschatology. Like, all Christians should look at uh, the, that's the end times. Uh, all Christians should look at what Scripture says and say, hey, the big point is God wins. Jesus wins. And there's a whole lot of other details in there that we're going to disagree and differ on. In the same way, just in life, and the things of this world, how we view others, how we treat others, how we speak to and about other people is not about whether we agree or disagree on the things of this life. Jesus says that the things of the world are passing away, and so we should value them as such. They're not ultimate. When I react to another, when I uh, relate to another Christian, it's not on the basis of what shared uh, practices or beliefs or viewpoints we have. It's on a shared love of Jesus and a love for his bride, the church. When I interact with other non-believers, I'm interacting with them based on the fact that they're created in the image of God and that they require and are in need of his mercy just the same way that we are and were before we came to know Christ. Our world doesn't need another hot take. It needs agents of mercy and agents of grace and agents of peace. But how do we, how do we live this out? Because I think as we read this list of characteristics, as we read passages like uh, the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 5, if we're seeking to grow in faith, we read these and we're like, man, I want these things to be true of my life. But then we look at our life and say, there's a lot of times I fall very short of the goal that I would like to have. So how do we cultivate this in our hearts? Two things, uh, two practical steps. First, we grow in this wisdom from above simply by asking God, That's how James starts his letter in chapter 1, verse 5. He says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. See, Christians, God wants you to grow in this. It's not something that he may or may not. God's desire is for you to grow in this wisdom. Oftentimes when we think about God's will for our life, we, we boil it down and think of like the big issues. We think, I need, man, I need God's wisdom and to know where his will is that I go for college. I need to know what to major in. I need God to give me guidance on who to marry and what job to take and where to move. Uh, and those are all great things to bring prayerfully to God and ask for wisdom in. But God's will for your life can be summed up in this, that he wants you to look more like Jesus. 
And that he says that he's going to do just that. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. We can trust that if we ask God, God will give because God tells us that he wants to give this to us. I think sometimes we get so discouraged because we focus on where that we're not two more steps down the Christian, walk, the Christian life than we are today. We wish we were more mature. We wished we wanted to spend more time in his word. We wished we had more prayerfulness in our life. We wished we were generous. We wish we were more peaceable. We, we wish all these things. We look at sinful areas in our life that we just can't quite seem to kick. And we're like, man, what is going, why can't I grow past this? And I think one of the things that we can take heart in uh, is that what scripture, the, the picture that God gives us in scripture is that yes, life transformation can happen radically and quickly in some cases. Maybe you've experienced that at a time in your life. But the transformation that God is doing in your life, God says, will take your life. It will not stop in this world. God will continue to be at work in your spirit and continue to be transforming you over the decades to come into who he wants you to be. And so we can live into faith and look to see growth and engage in spiritual disciplines and trust that God is at work even when we don't see or feel that he is because he promises that he is and we can take him at his word. He is trustworthy. And I think with that, we can also allow it and give ourselves grace for it to be messy sometimes. And we can give those around us that same grace that it can be messy. And you can take two steps forward and one back or two forward and three back sometimes. I think people romanticize sometimes about the early church and how great it would have been to be a part of that. Um, they usually kind of quote Acts, the end of Acts 2, when they do this. You may be familiar with the passage that they say, hey, all these people came to know Christ, and there was this amazing kind of revival when they came together, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. They devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to meeting the needs of the community, that if anyone had need, someone was quick to say, hey, I'll go sell off uh, my, this old car I have, and I don't need, and I'll, I'll pay for that need. And so you look at that and go, man, what an amazing picture. Those people are all so great. Why is my church so screwed up? But the thing is, they don't keep reading like two more chapters when there's ethnic conflict, and they're like, hey, our, our widows aren't getting treated the same way as the widows from over there. And then there's a guy that like lies about how much he gives to the church. And then you keep reading into the letters of the New Testament, and you start to realize how many of them were written entirely because they needed to address dysfunction and disunity and its sin and all these really messed up issues that were going on in these early churches. It's like they came back, you know, they all went to camp and they came back and two weeks later like, oh, I don't really like most of you people. You know, and this stuff starts coming up and so Paul's like, okay, let's, let's address this. Yes, we disagree. Yes, we differ. Yes, we sin and offend each other. We need to love each other through that. And you know what happened through the mess of the early churches, through all these sinful things, all these messed up things, is God gave us most of the New Testament. That God gave us what we need to grow in faith and to progress in our Christian life. The early church was a mess because it's a bunch of sinful people trying to figure out what their next step with Jesus was. And sometimes we find ourselves kind of in messy relationships and messy situations because we're a bunch of sinful people trying to figure out our next step with Jesus. But what we can do is we can trust that just like God used those situations to give us the New Testament, that God is going to use those situations in our life for his good, for his glory and our good. God doesn't waste the material of redemption and material of transformation. Uh, There's a a quote I love by John Newton, who's the guy that wrote Amazing Grace, which I'm sure we're all familiar with. It says this, he says, that I am not what I ought to be, 
I am not what I want to be. I am not what I hope to be in another world. But still, I am not what I once used to be. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. Church family, I pray that we would never be content to hold on to our sin. But when we find ourselves discouraged by those sins, we can also look to the God who redeems our messes and our failures and repurposes them for his good purpose. Um, And second, the other thing that I think we can just cultivate a habit of in our life is we should flip when we find ourselves in a contentious situation, when we find ourselves in conflict or disagreement. We can flip who we ask for the burden of proof and we can flip who we give the benefit of the doubt to. Because I find myself in most situations seems to be when we enter into a, a disagreement, I want the other person to defend themselves to me, to convince me why they're right, and I give myself the burden or the uh, benefit of the doubt that I'm probably right and I don't really need to examine my motives. I need to hear your reasons, but I don't need to look hard at mine. And I think one of the things that gospel humility says we can do is we can go into a conversation and say, I don't require you to prove yourself to me. I'll listen, I'll consider, I'll think, but you don't have to uh, win the argument. There's a big difference when we approach a situation saying, hey, help me understand, versus saying, defend yourself to me. It changes the dynamic of that conversation entirely. I think that's what uh, James is getting at when he says we're open to reason, gentle, impartial, and sincere. That we're not looking to prove that I was right, and we're not looking for the win. And also, I think we should be open to examining our own position, examining our own motives. Because sometimes I think we're not even fully cognizant of what's going on in our own heart. It's what we see in in David, right? David writes uh, in the Psalms, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. David's looking at God and go, like, God, I don't even understand fully sometimes who I am and why I do the things that I do. Can you relate? Maybe? It's like, why, why did I just do that? I, I knew that wasn't what I was supposed to do. So we pray to God, God, show me, reveal these things to me so I can grow. And Jeremiah takes it even further and he says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? This isn't just figurative language. It's, you know, an acknowledgement that sometimes uh, we need others, we need Christians, we need God's Spirit to be at work in our life to reveal to us some of the things that we don't even realize about ourselves. And this is hard to do because naturally we want to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We don't want to be uh, examine kind of the depths of our hearts sometimes, but this is in accordance with living with wisdom from above. And ultimately, the main goal of every interaction we have as those who are following God should not be to prove that I am right, but to prove that they are loved. And if that's the type of people we are, like if that's the type of church that we look to build, then it's uh, be radically different than the, the fractiousness we see in this world. If we can be a people and a place that embodies a gospel culture and proclaims that Jesus is not just with our words, but with every interaction we have with each other. And the great news here is this is hard, but again, we can ask God and trust that he wants to do this in our midst if we will follow him. Let's pray. Father, uh, we come before you and we confess that we probably fall short, that I fall short in this uh, more often than I get it right, Lord, but uh, we thank you that your grace extends even that you save to the uttermost, that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more, Lord. And so I pray that you would just, uh, through your spirit, be at work, giving us this wisdom from above, helping us to enact it, to live out 
uh, the wisdom to live out the model of life that Jesus put before us uh, that looks at the world and says, how can I serve? How can I be an agent of grace and mercy and peace in a world that is desperately lacking in that? And Lord, through that, may you bring uh, many to know your son. All the things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.